This podcast is brought to you by the film Ezra from Bleecker Street, directed by Tony Goldwyn with an incredible ensemble that includes Robert De Niro, Bobby Cannavale, and Whoopi Goldberg. Ezra is a funny and endearing story about Max, a divorced father struggling to co-parent his autistic son, Ezra. When faced with difficult decisions about the future, they embark on a cross-country road trip that has a transcendent impact on both their lives. Deadline calls Ezra a touching testament to the power of love. In theaters May 31st. Pampers Cruisers 360 is the must-have diaper to help keep your baby from taking it right off, which, if you've experienced this, can lead to complete chaos. With its 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your baby for a comfortable fit, your active baby can move freely. Think of it as baby yoga pants. Cruisers 360 offers a gap-free fit and has a blowout barrier at the back of the diaper to help stop any unwanted disasters. The best part? That stretchy waistband makes it so easy to change your wiggly baby who is always on the move and can't be stopped. Just rip the sides to remove and roll it up with the disposal tape on the back. Voila! Pampers Cruisers are available in sizes 3 to 7 and now feature fun new prints. Pair with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, made from 100% plant-based cloth that grips the mess without fear of tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. For trusted protection, trust Pampers the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hi, this is Laura Vanderkam. I'm a mother of four, an author, journalist, and speaker. And this is Sarah Hart Unger. I'm a mother of three, practicing physician, and blogger on the side. We are two working parents who love our careers and our families. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. Here we talk about how real women manage work, family, and time for fun. From figuring out childcare to mapping out long-term career goals, we want you to get the most out of life. Welcome to Best of Both Worlds. This is Laura. This is episode 58. Today, Sarah and I will be talking about our biggest mistakes or mistakes we've made over the years, both uh, professionally and personally, and how we have recovered from those, or at least learned from those in many cases. This episode is airing for the first time on September 11, which we know for many of our American listeners is, uh, you know, a day where we are also thinking back over time a lot, particularly to those days, that very, um, you know, momentous day 17 years ago. So our, our thoughts are definitely going out to any one of our listeners who are personally affected by that. Sarah, where were you on, on September 11, 2001? I was a senior in college at Williams, and I was actually, I remember, like, I'm sure everyone of our generation can give you, like, very vivid imagery of exactly where you were when you found out, but I recall I had been in the lab while it was actually happening, and I was doing, like, surgeries on rats, believe it or not, and I came out, and the street was, like, weirdly, like, I heard this weird buzz, like, it was very quiet, but everyone was sort of hushly talking to each other, but I didn't, like, ask any random stranger, like, what's going on, and then I got back to my little house where I was living, and 
we were, everybody was crowded around the TV. So that's when I found out. So it was after actually both planes had already hit because I had been like cloistered away in this basement lab while it was happening. Yeah. But again, I'm sure everyone of our generation remembers like exact details. What about you? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm one year ahead of you in in school. So I had um, just graduated that uh, June. And so I was working uh, in a year long internship at USA Today, uh, which at the time was in Arlington, Virginia. And uh, so a slightly late start to work. Um, Newspapers often start a little bit later. So uh, I was on the subway there when um, somebody got on and said what had happened, like a a plane had flown into into one of the towers. Wow, that's uh, doesn't sound good. Um, You know, get to work and find out multiple hits in, in New York. And then the thing is, we're at the t- we're at you know what it was like the 16th floor or something of this tower in Arlington, Virginia, and all of a sudden somebody comes through the hall yelling, you know, the Pentagon is on fire. Oh. So go to the window and look out, and indeed the Pentagon is on fire. And one of the men whose wife you know lived right by the Pentagon said she had just heard a huge plane uh, flying over it. She called and told us that. So yeah, we were putting out a paper um, with uh, that going on. It was. It was quite a day because they, um, I mean, they kept trying to evacuate us, right? Like, so it wasn't just, you know, like we're trying to put the news out. It was that the public safety officials in in Northern Virginia had, we had no idea if there wasn't going to be other planes coming into DC. And and so we, you know, they kept having us go down and come back up. We try to get the rest of the paper out. Um, But yeah, it was, it was something. It was, uh, you know, I'm sure we all do have these, these memories of, of exactly where we were were then and you know how it affected everything you know so much so yeah we saw we just um acknowledged that day before we get into the the rest of of this episode so one of the things that we've been both doing this summer is is focusing on our our reading lives um sarah your book club uh, just just read something that was particularly meaty wasn't it yeah we're actually i'm actually hosting this one uh our book club is really so to refresh everyone, I'm in two book clubs, like a regular book club and a parenting book club. And this is the regular one. Um, and the regular one, the parenting one is very intimate. The regular one is quite large. And so you only get a chance to host perhaps once a year, maybe twice a year. No, usually really once a year because we only meet like um, every other month. So that's even generous. I think I've been like a more frequent hoster than <laughs> than average. Anyway, so I am hosting American Marriage, an American Marriage by Tyari Tayari Jones. And wow, I am actually not totally through the book. I'm like 70% through, but the characters are so multidimensional and there's so many sort of political um, themes to it. I think we're going to have a really amazing discussion. So I'm really glad I picked it. You know, I've seen a lot about that book, various places. I, I don't think it's my kind of book. The accusation type book is is not um, something I. Oh yeah, readable. some people do have problems with that. Um, yeah, the unjust accusation. Yeah. There is definitely, but that's kind of part of the theme of the book. So right, yes, um, the false accusation. I yeah, say. and it, I think there kind is. of is the plot, isn't it? I mean, that's uh, yeah. That is that is exactly the plot. Um, but unpacking that and you know how that happens in the aftermath of that aftermath of that. At least you're not, well, yeah, I don't want to do any spoilers for anyone who might read it, but, but it is, it is, if you have a book club, I think it's a great pick for, for a book that's, you know, going to lead, you're not just going to be like, oh, I love that character. Oh, that was so great. Like you're going to have some really interesting subjects to, to talk about. So, 
So it's a maybe yeah. pick for a book club. I think yes. there's actually yes. a good discussion going on. Yes. Yeah. And I enjoy it. I actually, I do enjoy it. You know what? I kind of like books. The unjust accusation doesn't bother me as much. And um, I like books where I'm like not sure which character I side with. Like I really enjoy that. And this is one of those. Well, certainly when your your loyalties shift over time, that, that's actually something that's been um, in this book I've been reading in August, uh, Infinite Jest, uh, David Foster Wallace, which is- That is a thick book. It is a thick book. Um, I was reading it on my Kindle, so it it, uh, it was thick, but it was uh, you know in, on my phone. And I just finished it. Uh, I thought I had finished it a day or two ago. I had been reading the footnotes. So the, okay, anyone who's read it, you know, there's like 300, 400 footnotes. And some of them have actual whole scenes in them. And so on the Kindle, I had the ability to- uh, you know, hit the highlighted footnote and go to that footnote. Um, So that made it quite easy. I didn't have to flip back and forth. I would just, you know, hit the note. But for whatever reason, like six, like long scenes are not hyperlinked. And I I never figured it out because I'm pretty sure I clicked on every hyperlinked footnote. And somehow then I got to the footnotes and I realized that there were these whole scenes I had never read. Um, oh, weird. So, yeah, I don't know if it's a glitch with that or, you know, I mean, it's possible I just missed them, but I, I don't think so. I don't think I would have missed all of them. So then I, you know, was reading it. But but the funny thing is, I, you know, I had, I was 88% in according to my Kindle. Um, and in my mind, I was like, well, I know the footnotes will be some of it, but maybe it'll be like two or 3% of it. And that seems about right, that he needs another like 7%, 8% of book to wrap up these loose threads that are, are still here. And I see we're, you know, we're getting toward the end, but he's, he's got to wrap up these things and then hit 88%. And all of a sudden there's a bio of David Foster Wallace. It's like, over. It's just over. abruptly like, ended. Abruptly ended. And uh, you know, this is not a surprise to anyone who's read it or, or read any of the commentary on it. I'm like sitting there going, what just happened? And so of course I go and Google like what happened at the end of Infinite Justice. Of course, there's all these pages there. What happened? Because everyone else finishes it and goes and Googles what happened at the end of Infinite Just. Wait, but is there a real answer of what happened? There like, is. Or just there is. And it's hinted at. Um, so I went back and reread the first chapter. And there are a few things. Because the first chapter actually happens a year after the last chapter. And so you can see things that are written about there. And then, you know, they were hinted about later. And, there, and there's certainly other um, scenes that once I read some of the commentary, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that happening. And now I see how that was linked. Um, but some of this is very oblique. I mean, you wouldn't have necessarily known it. I mean, there's oh, whole I kind of want to read it now. Well, there's whole things that are left up in the air like this. You know, I, I, this isn't really a spoiler alert because you kind of know this from the beginning, but there's this uh, wheelchair assassin gang that's the Quebec separatists. Um, and they're coming to this tennis academy. And you're like, well, did they actually get there? Like, did they, you know, get the person they were trying to get? I mean, you create this assassin gang and then you don't know if they actually get the person they're trying to get. It's one of these things. Like, that is a pretty big loose end not to tie up. But uh, it's not tied up. And you can ponder why. David Foster Wallace chose to do that. But, you know, it's kind of fun to uh, tackle a big book because, I mean, A, it solves the problem of what do I read next for like an entire month, which is, you know, kind of a useful thing. You get into it. You get to know the characters. You know, there's, there's a lot of problems with the book. I think he gets away with some things because you're like, in your mind, you kind of build up as like, oh, he's this genius. This is such a huge, important book. And so you get away with things that like, I think other writers would not get away with, um, not because they would have written it any worse than he did, but just because of the the packaging of it. And uh, I felt the same way about um, 
that book Freedom, you know, that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, no, who was that by? Oh boy, why did I just blank totally on the, on the name? <laughs> Freedom, you know, very famous, um, and the William again, Wallace, no male writer. Um, no. Which, no. of course, that's something that people have pointed out too. That it's often these male writers who it's like everyone's like, oh, they're a literary genius, and it's. Uh, Jonathan mm. Franzen. Yes, I was. Oh, who I usually like, actually. Okay, yeah. interesting. Well, was, and there's parts was, to like. That is, I was going to say, do, are you alluding to his gender at all? <laughs> well, yeah. there's, there's parts certainly to like. There's also parts that you're like, what on earth are you doing? But it's like, oh, he must be the genius that I just don't understand. Or maybe it's just that it's, it's experimental. It's overhead. Yeah. yeah. I feel like other people, you know, writing something like that, people will be like, oh, that just doesn't work. But it's like, because you have in your mind that, oh, he's this literary genius, you give them more of a benefit of the doubt, even for stuff that actually doesn't work or is just obtuse or whatever. So, but yeah, I know I'm glad I tackled Infinite Jest and uh, now I have to find my next big book, I guess. Maybe I'm going to be reading some short books. For you could read a little, t- I read a little teeny tiny book. So I'm the, right now I'm like in the opposite stage because I'm not going through books nearly as fast because, you know, I'm in that more young kids, you know, children under two, time is more limited. And um, Convenience Store Woman was a recommendation on uh, the Modern Mrs. Darcy podcast, whereas I get like 99 recommendations. And it took about like three days to read. And like, it'd probably take you one day to read. And it's set in Japan, which always makes me happy because I like quirky Japanese things. It's by a woman named Sayaka Murata. And it's weird, but I recommend it. All right. (laughs) Well, so good. the total opposite of what you just read, basically. Okay, yes. All right. Maybe I'll put that on the list next. Uh, well, then we'll, we'll just go ahead and segue into yeah. the body of this episode. Since it's just going to be us, we don't have a guest for this one. Um, there, I guess we don't really have to have a dividing line between the intro and the, the regular stuff. So we're already talking this episode about mistakes. We have made various missteps or you know, paths not taken, as the case may be, and, and you know what we've done with that. So I guess we'll sort of kind of go back and forth. But I looked at this, uh, you know, Sarah's got some slightly meaty ones at the beginning. <laughs> you know, your, your MD, PhD, let's talk about that. Oh, yeah. So any if you know, I'm sure there is a very smatter, a smattering of people that are longtime blog readers of mine, um, because I did have a blog throughout this sort of turning point in my life. Um, but I entered Duke as an MD, PhD student. I had, you know, that research that I mentioned doing um, during 9-11, I was pretty into it at the time. I was looking at like, of early life stress on memory. I kind of was interested in uh, neuroscience and kind of the interaction between hormones and behavior and the, the environment. And I thought, you know what? MD-PhD seems like a great idea. Number one, it's paid for. Um, I'm sure that's not supposed to be that much of an enticement, but uh, my parents were wonderful in that they paid for my entire college education, which was not cheap, um, but that was definitely where where the ending. So I was like, wow, you can go to school and have it completely paid for because the MD PhD student uh, programs are um, on a federal grant. And um, I liked the research and I, and I had decent scores and good, pretty good grades. So I felt like, you know what, it's a few extra years doing research. I'll have multiple options when I finish, you know, I, I might want to be a researcher. I might not, but I, you know, I, I, I'm interested in it enough to to express my interest during these interviews, and I kind of you know knew that they would want to hear that I was excited about research, which I genuinely was at the time. Um, and so I did go in that direction. Um, I was fairly successful in interviews, and then when I got into Duke, I was like, "All right, we're done." And um, I, I headed there, and the first year was great. I loved my MD PhD cohort, and 
really had no doubts about what I was doing. Second year at Duke was clinical. So I went into the wards thinking, okay, this is my wards time and it's going to be great because I'm going to go back to PhD land after this. And, you know, then that was going to be about a four-year journey and then head back um, to medicine. And at Duke, the whole thing might have taken me six years. It might have taken probably more likely seven, actually. A lot of people do do five years. Um, no. Yeah, seven. So four years of research plus the three years of med school. And um, because Duke has a condensed program. Anyway, but somewhere during, I think at the end of my first research year, I was starting to ask different questions about what I wanted my life to look like. And, you know, as a 22-year-old, I was single, graduating college, or I guess 21 when I was applying because it was during that that fall of 2001. Single, really like was sort of being encouraged not to think about you know, family planning, like it was very antithetical to the Williams education to even like bring those topics up. So they didn't cross my mind. And it was almost like if someone were to mention that, I would be very indignant about it. Like, how dare you mention that I will be 30 by the time I, or 35 or 36 by the time I'm practicing medicine, right? So I really didn't go there. But Med school started 2002. I met my husband, who was then my boyfriend. I, the wheels were turning as to like, hmm, how old will I be at this time? How old will I be at this time? What do I want? I want a family. And the at the same time as I was kind of figuring that out, my passion for the research itself was kind of dying out. I hated bench work. I guess I liked it with the idea that like, oh, if you, I like work where you know when you put your work in, you're going to get something out. Like that is why like it's satisfying to me to, to see patients. It's like, oh, I'm going to put the work in. I'm going to see the patients. They're going to be happy. Like, you know, I'm sort of cranking out widgets. They're just more complex widgets, right? But when you're doing research, you can like crank out widgets all day and then like someone else scoops you and you have literally nothing to show for it or something doesn't work. And I found that super frustrating to my personality type. So it just sort of became evident. Sorry, I'm like going off in a huge tangent, but this was my life's biggest mistake. (laughs) Um, uh, It became apparent to me that this wasn't the direction I needed to go. And I started frantically figuring out like, oh my God, can I go just go back to med school? And the answer was yes. You can go back to med school. You don't actually have to pay back to government. You do have to pay for your last year of med school, which I am still finishing up my loans for that now, although we're close to the end. Yay. And I ended up graduating in five years instead of four, which actually left me one year out of sync with my husband which did cause a little bit of complications in terms of matching. We couldn't do what's called couples matching. and uh, But the truth is it all worked out really nicely in the end. We finished at the same time. I'm very thankful not to have a research career. I do not particularly enjoy doing research. And so, yeah, that was my big mistake. I mean, I don't think it was like – I wouldn't call it wasted time in the sense that I'm sure you learned a lot about the research process. And, I mean, maybe I'm being it optimistic out, here. Yes, but- <laughs> I did. I took I – took, I took a good amount of way to it. I would say like the, the times that it felt most like the mistake was, well, the funny thing is in my fellowship, I was sort of forced to do research and that had nothing to do with the PhD, but it just is part of the training to become a pediatric endocrinologist. And I think because of my prior research background, I was heavily encouraged to do bench research and then ended up in a lab again, which I guess that was sort of a second mistake because I was miserable. Like I would count the hours. Like I hated it. And I would beg to do anything clinical. I'm like, oh, I'll cover the hospital. Like I'll, I'll take extra call. Like I didn't care anything to, to not be, not be in the lab. So, I mean, I don't know. That wasn't even as much of a choice. That just, that was just how it was. I guess that was my second mistake is, is agreeing to do bench work a second time when I knew it wasn't for me. Yeah. yeah. Although I'm, I'm looking at number two of your, uh, you know, various. Oh, I don't know. Like, you know, it's very easy to doubt yourself. I'm like, should I have gone to med school in the first place? I mean, I, I enjoy my job now mostly. 
But I definitely, when we have people on our podcast, it has actually like awakened part of me. I'm like, oh, I could have done that. I could have done that. And maybe that's, maybe that's not fair. I mean, I, I have a, I have a great job. It's really rewarding in many ways. There are certainly frustrations with it that I didn't anticipate when I went into it to begin with. And I also, I'm like really kind of sad about having call. I, I don't, as I've spoken, I don't, I don't want to be woken up to patient phone calls in the middle of the night when I'm 60. I just find it toxic. So I, I don't know. Um, who knows? And who knows what would you, what'll happen? Uh, I'm, I'm curious, like what, what's, well, I mean, it's so cliche, but my, like my, one of my, I remember Gretchen Rubin talking about like, what did you love to do when you were little? And I love to write and I love to write stories and I love to write, like I would, I had a typewriter in my room and I would like spend hours doing it. I've, you know, kept a blog for about a million years. I don't think I'm a terrible writer. I think I might've gone down that route, maybe more in the fiction side of things. But I think, again, that part of my personality that's like, ooh, if you put a lot of work in and something fails, it really frustrates me. That might not have done well because I know you often have to fail a lot in writing before you (laughs) succeed. There is that. I don't know. I could have done that. I think I would have been a great like corporate Josh hates when I say corporate pawn, but like, I think I would have been great, like working for Google, like in marketing, like I, I get stuff done. Like I could have done consulting and I, I, I could have done a lot of things and I didn't really consider any options after quite a young age. Like once I decided I was going to med school, it's a little bit in my upholder nature to be like, well, this is what I have to do to get there. And like, why would I even look around and think about something else? Cause I got a path that works like, and that's it's also a little bit we're getting very Gretchen Rubin-y here, but a little satisficer too. Like, okay, well, this is pretty good. This is a good job. Like, I don't think I necessarily question things. And you know what? I will give my parents um, props because they were always like, are you sure you wanted to go into medicine? You know, your uncle, he has to work really, my uncle's an OBGYN and like the only doctor in my family he has to work really long hours and they're, you know, it's really tiring. And they, they were not parents. They were certainly proud when I chose that, but they did not push me into it at all. So I know it must be even harder in families where, you know, the parents have very specific ideas of how they would like their children to succeed. Yes, they've been telling you since age two that you need to be a doctor. That's a slightly different, slightly different issue. Um, but let's, let's, that was a lot. And I want to hear some of your mistakes. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> Cause no, no, that no. was like probably more than anyone bargained for. And I don't even know if they were truly mistakes. No, no. Well, I mean, I don't think yeah. going to med school is a mistake in the sense that you like practicing medicine. And you, yeah, you would not have been true. able to practice medicine without being a doctor. So in that sense. And I am not miserable in my career. Yeah, Do not yeah. get me wrong. There are wonderful things and, about and it. And I also just, I mean, listening to this, I, I don't think it's impossible that you can take the writing back up. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, I know that you uh, have a great blog. You've got a great platform in terms of that and the podcast that if you do want to write something, um, you can certainly do so. And, it, you know, maybe as time opens up, as your kids get a little bit older, you might start taking some of that extra time to start writing fiction. No, it's definitely on my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so so your, your mistakes, give me a meaty one to ma- maybe think of something that can match that. Yeah. Well, so I've written a number of books. Uh, some of which you might have heard of, <laughs> some of which you probably haven't. And there are reasons for this. Uh, you know, I started my career co-authoring books. Um, and, and one interesting thing, you know, this can take a lot of time. And then, um, you know, nothing can come out, not much can come out of the book itself if, if you don't get a whole lot of people reading it. And I actually had two in a row with this. One was co-authored. Uh, there's a book I was matched. My agent matched me with, uh, the agent I had at the time with a client who's coming into the agency was a young doctor wanted to write a book called the healthy guide to unhealthy living, which is a great no way. Yeah. It was a, it's a wonderful topic 
we got a you know six figure advance on it you know multiple publishers building on it wrote this book and then uh for a variety of reasons which i'm i'm sure you know made great sense for for his life he decided to go in a different direction with his career and then so he really couldn't promote the book um, <gasps> which wow. of course from the publishing side though people were just like furious and the, nothing happened with the book i mean this is a book that could have i think done very well um but didn't because you don't have the author behind it doing anything. And so the you know publisher themselves didn't do anything with it. Uh, so, you know, I, I put quite a bit of effort into co-authoring this with him to write, you know, so there's that. Uh, and then um, my next book was actually a solo book uh, that, it, you know, is called Grind Hopping, Build a Rewarding Career Without Paying Your Dues. It, and you are right. I have not heard of it. Heard and of I thought it. I knew all of your books. You knew the entire <laughs> and I thought I had read all of them. Yeah. Well, so this book came out in 2006 um, and it literally sold like a thousand copies total. Okay. Uh, which is not very great. I mean, maybe hope, Hey, we could maybe get a spike in sales. If people are listening to this, you want to go buy the ebook. It's, it's available. So you could go buy the ebook. Oh, that'd be awesome. You'll have to, you'll have to report, report back. back. <laughs> I suddenly like start getting more royalties from it because people have gone and bought the ebook is about the rise of self-employment among young people. And the idea is that, uh, you know, in the past, the idea is you'd, you'd work for a company for a long time. And then eventually if you had entrepreneurial aspirations, you'd go out on your own. But these days, there's really no reason you can't do that yourself. Like first, you can work for yourself first um, because the tools to start a business are so much more available. And, and certainly this, you know, I was writing this in the early 2000s. That was more of a, you know, profound concept then. I think that it is now. Like, there's this thing called the internet. Um, but also just that uh, the bargain between companies and employees was changing. Like we, um, it used to be, that you might expect to work for someplace for a long time. Um, but now you, you know that a company, it, most employment contracts are at will, like it could end at any time. And and so this has reflected then people feel like, well, why should I pay my dues, you know, climbing up the corporate ladder to then be given opportunities? I want to learn things early on. Uh, and by running your own business, you can do that. Uh, you learn all aspects of things and there are ways to be mentored and to learn things, even if you're not within a company. So that was what the book was about couple things went wrong with it. First, I mean, I say the word grind hopping. You have no idea what that means. It was, it was yeah, I mean, it's probably not like, the best thing. You're, you're um, hopping out of the grind, right? Like, uh, but I had to explain that every single time. I was like, what? I don't understand. Uh, the other issue is that we went through three different- Sounds like it could be about coffee and beer. It could be about, yeah. We three <laughs> different editors. So it was pretty much, it was an orphan project by the time it came out and nobody cared about it. Also, I had, and then, I mean, the mistake part is I had no idea how to promote a book. Uh, in, in my mind, you know, I just hadn't learned all this. I hadn't really studied marketing, like the ways people do this. I, you know, you put out a book, people buy it. Like, don't publishers themselves have ways of promoting books? And, you know, sometimes they do, but often they don't. And, or they choose not to because there's other titles and they only have so many people working in publicity or what, you know, whatever it is. So I had not, you know, built up any of that. Uh, I could write about it for different places, but it turns out that, you know, writing a column about this topic, even in a place like USA Today, doesn't get that many people to buy a book. Um, I didn't understand, like, you need your own people. You need, like, your email list. You need, you know, your own blog built up. You need a podcast, for instance, where you can interact with, with people who care about your ideas and uh, so, you know, it, it was, it was, 
went nowhere, um, which means that they didn't want a follow on um, book. Like they didn't want my next book. I wanted to continue writing books. And so that particular publisher did not want my next book. I got the news that they did not want my next proposal. I cranked out while I was actually, Oh, but they missed out. But yeah. Well, I was, while I was in the <laughs> hospital, while I was in labor with Jasper, my oldest, I like bother. I was checking my Blackberry cause you know, I'm bored <laughs> in between contractions. And that's when I got my news. I was like, Oh, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> So, you know, and that was one, no, that was not, it was, it was, oh. it was another book that I never wound up writing, which is, oh my goodness, you know, it is what it is. But so it took a long time to get a contract for 168 hours because I was an author who had not sold books, who had written a book, but had not sold any, uh, which the good news is that I didn't get like a huge advance for that first book. And why it doesn't sound like a, I mean, that sounds like a bad thing. Um, but what I've seen friends of mine have happened to them is if you get a really, really huge advance for your first book and then you don't sell, like you will never get to write another book. And because you've just cost the company cost an insane much, amount and of Nobody money. else will take a risk on you. And so that is a problem if you wish to write, you know, people sometimes will write under pseudonyms for another book because of that. Uh, so, wow. you know, in my case, that wasn't the issue. Uh, so, you know, it's small potatoes. Um, so it took, it took, you know, a long time to get the contract with another publisher for what became 168 hours. Even that though, I, you know, you'd think I would have learned my lesson of like, I need to spend so much time and effort on marketing the book, like as much as I do on writing the book. Yeah, I just, I don't like if my brain does not work that way, which is why I so admire people like, you know, Jessica Turner, who will be a, an upcoming guest. Yeah. And we actually had a request to have her yeah. on. Like, well, Haha, is, we already even have that in the, in the docket. She works professionally <laughs> in marketing. Um, then obviously she has this other side of being a, a book author and, and content, you know, influencer or whatever she, but because she knows how marketing works, she has an instinct for it. That's, that's just amazing. Like I think about 168 hours I had, you know, on my blog had people like, I, I said I was going to do some time makeovers for that book. And so, you know, people wrote me like a fair number of people wrote me saying, Oh, I'd love to be included. And I talked with some of them and I didn't include all of them, but like, I never wrote those people who had emailed me to tell them that this book was out. Like, Oh my God. Easy sales. Easy sales. <laughs> Easy sales. And yet I, I just didn't think to do it. Probably multiple sales. Cause they'd be like, look, I'm in this book. And um, but even the people who weren't can... in the book, they were clearly interested enough in it yeah. to like, yes, you're right. yeah. But this idea of like, Oh yeah, you need to reach out to people. Like they won't just find you in the vast marketplace of everything. So, you know, 168 hours, the good news is it's selling as many copies per week now as it sold when it came out in 2010. So that's amazing. It's, it's a perennial it's a perennial seller, which is great. Um, so I'm happy with that. Get royalty checks every six months from it. But I'm very grateful that Portfolio, which is part of Penguin, which is now Penguin Random House, did not give up on me. Like they thought there was, you know, they were willing to keep working with me, even though the next book, which some people also may not, you know, talk about another career sort of dead end. Uh, it's called All the Money in the World. And was a brief foray in like, shall we position Laura as a personal finance expert? And the answer is no, we should not do that. <laughs> We've already been asked to do a finances episode. And I think both of us are yeah. like, yeah. we might have to have a good guest for that one. If anybody wants to volunteer as a great personal finance expert, 
to be a guest, then uh, now is the time to let us know because I don't think either of us necessarily want to be that well, person. It's, but it's not that I don't understand money. It's just that my perspective on it is is different and it's not one that translates broadly. I mean, the people who do well with this are showing you how to, you know, save money on your car insurance and then, you know, do uh, frugal recipes. And, you know, there's a huge market for that. There is, you know, my, I just don't see it that way. I mean, the first thing I was thinking about, you know, like I'd often rather turn money into time. And, but then the good news is. But see, I would have thought that your perspective would have been valued because it is different. But I guess. Well. Apparently, <laughs> I don't know. not as a book. I mean, you know, you know, my my, I, I'm happy with my current time management book sales. Um, you will note that none of mine have been like a number one New York Times bestseller, and you know part of that is that there's also certain narratives people do like, which is that you are, you know, so so busy in this crazy crazy world, and I will not ever write that. So we'll see. I'm always I'm always the counter counter argument, which is limits your market to agree. But anyway, all the money, I mean, I'm going on for a long time on this too. <laughs> no, but it's super interesting. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think for us, those are our, our, all of our other points and we will give some of them um, are like little, although interesting, um, but it's the career stuff. And, and it is so hard to know. It's like, well, it all turned out okay. You know, so was it a mistake or not? It's so hard yeah. to know. Yeah. I mean, so all the money in the world also has not sold very well. I mean, it sold more than grind hopping, but it did not sell particularly well or fast. But in between finishing that manuscript and in coming out, I had decided to write a short ebook in coffee shop at night while my, I don't know, I was escaping the household of three small children um, once a week or so. I wrote a small ebook called What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast. And it, you know, portfolio. That's was, another big perennial. Well, right? Portfolio was then willing to publish it. And we decided to have it come out a few months after All the Money in the World. And, and that that one really did sell. Um, so that awesome. did hit like Amazon's official bestseller list. It was number one for audiobooks on iTunes. And it was just like experiencing that was so different from the previous books that I was just like, oh, well, that's what it feels like to write a book that people <laughs> we know what your really niche. want to read. Yeah. <laughs> so I know what my niche is now. And so it's been time management ever since. And I think it's done awesomely from my perspective. I mean, I love oh, your book. Thank you. you know that. I appreciate that. <sighs> All right. Another light. Well, here's like a back in time yes. one. Ready? Okay. Um, you know, I've had my blog forever and I should have switched it to WordPress at some point. Um, it just <laughs> okay, gives you so much more flexibility. Like, should I have gone to med school? <laughs> Nope. Much smaller. But, you know, I think content wise, like, I think I still have something to offer, but I know people don't find it. And I know it looks like a super old website and what WordPress would have enabled me to more easily like outsource and facelift it. And I, at every juncture, I was like, well, I have readers, so I don't want to lose them by like moving it. And now it's like, <sighs> how many years later? I don't even know. 17. 13, whatever, how many years, however many years I've been, 14 years writing this blog and it's still on Blogger or Blogspot, which is like the grandfather's blog site and, oh, well, it's vintage. anyway, maybe I'll move it <laughs> next year. It but you could, you could change that. It's I mean, vintage. you could still have the shoebox.com and you just have to hire Yeah, it's, to I could migrate it. I may it. lose comments, which would be really sad because I have like, no, you know, then you, you know, just like you hire somebody comments. and, and pay them enough that they won't. 
Like they will manually transfer them if they need to. I need to actually do it. I need to just suck it up and do it. And then on that same note, even though we're supposed to be alternating, don't you wish we started this in like 2015? <laughs> I know. As soon as we like met each other, like so we went for a run together in the summer of 2014. Oh, yes. Your um, pregnant, pregnant run. run. Um, would have been great if we had been like as we were running. Hey, I have this idea. There's this new thing. I should have been like, I'm really into I'm podcasts. Really into podcasts. <laughs> We should start one together, but we did not. Because uh, it's true. The people that got in on the early phases, I mean, now it's just, I don't want to say the market, but the listeners are much more fragmented because there's so many good options, but, um, you know, oh, well. Yeah. Hindsight. Well, we'd be at three and a half million downloads by now instead of like 350,000. Exactly. I mean, you know, at least we started in 2017. There's that, that proverb. I'm sure people have seen this and all over Instagram, but the, you know, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the second best time is now. Right. So, um, you know, that is what it is. Uh, nope. That's exactly true. Started. How about vacations? Did you take any vacations that were mistakes? Uh, yeah. I can think of. Yeah. One. I mean, we know you. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll go with mine uh, real quick here. We rented a beach house for two weeks that summer of 2014. Um, I Ocean Grove, where we always go. I thought I had arranged it carefully so that our nanny at the time and my husband would trade off. So I would always have another adult there um, with me. Uh, and, you know, I have, we had the three kids, seven, they were seven, four, and two at the time. And I was pregnant with Alex. Um, and then our, our, our nanny at the time um, decided she wanted to move on to a different job. And so she was <gasps> interviewing for jobs. And so it'd be sort of last minute that she'd then get an interview. And so she like, wouldn't be able to come out. Uh, my husband also is like moving around stuff. And so then he couldn't be there. I you know, said he would be there like Friday and over the weekend and Monday. And, and then he'd like have stuff on, on Monday or Friday, you know, it was just, it was. So you were in a beach alone. house alone with three children and pregnant. pregnant. Oh. And it was incredibly stressful. I mean, we didn't even have great weather. Like, so I'm hauling all this stuff to the beach because none of them were like reliably good beach stuff haulers no seven four and two i mean that a two you had, had a two-year-old like seven like... year old i could convince occasionally to carry like some towels but everyone else was just like useless and then i mean the low point of this is like i'm so stressed i'm like you know dealing with them not all great weather and the kids like at some point they started like jumping off the front porch into the bushes like i and i found them doing this i found my boys doing this and i come out and i'm just like yelling at them like get in the house, get your, like, you cannot do this. I feel like they're going to like break their legs and then I'm going to have to deal with that. Then I get a call from our landlord because apparently some of the neighbors had heard me yelling at the children or trying to figure out what was going on. She was basically trying to suss out if I was like abusing my children. And she <gasps> oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness. I, oh, I, wow. I pretty much, I, I like, almost, I like, my husband happened to be there when that phone call came. He had like gotten in there and I was like, you know, hung up the phone. I was like in tears. I'm like, we are leaving now. We are leaving now. You're never doing this to me. I'm like, not actually abusing my children. I'm just, you know, the pregnant lady who has children coming out my ears. That are hurting themselves <laughs> or trying to hurt themselves and you're trying to stop them. Oh my God. I, I've been in that situation before. Well, not, not with that many kids and pregnant, but like where the kids just, you're saying the same thing over again and not getting any response. And like, what are you, 
you know yeah anyway this is why this is not a parenting contest (laughs) i'm sure Um, there's i don't know that there's any parent who hasn't had that happen when you're in you know the kids are trying to hurt themselves you're in a very stressful situation like i don't there's nobody who doesn't like get stressed about that all right well our worst trip was probably um disney world when cameron was 14 months um because we we decided, oh, we had to go for Annabelle's third birthday. I'm not sure. I mean, it, yes, she kind of enjoyed it as much as a three-year-old. Wait, why why did you decide, moment. like, it had to be for the third birthday? I don't know. We, we had just moved down fifth. here, and it was sort of – we were giddy about the idea that it was, like, easy to go to Disney World. And don't bring a 14-month-old to Disney World. It's, like, the worst. It is the worst. They cannot stand in the line. Like, you try to put them in the line. They want to do everything, but they want to walk away. So I basically couldn't even have him in line because he'd, like, fight me and run the whole time. I just remember being, like, we're, like, hemorrhaging money and suffering. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was our mistake trip. I And then I vowed never to go back with anybody under three, I think. And then I totally broke my vow and brought Genevieve as, like, a tiny baby infant. But that was actually much, much, much better than having a 14-month-old because she just, like, slept in the ergo. He was, like, a total pain in yeah. the ass. So, yeah, don't yeah, do that. The to- toddlers are, are tough in general. I think that is a theme they of the are. best of both worlds podcast. I'm staring that down it's, right uh, now as Genevieve's true. nine months. And I'm that. like, oh. Um, Yeah, she's almost walking. Terrifying. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. No, that's that's a that's a rough one. I don't know. Um, All right. You said not taking Spanish in high school or college. Yeah. I I mean, professionally useful for you, and I mean, just living in the Miami. Oh, it would be so professionally useful. It would have been professionally useful in North Carolina as well. And I mean, it's actually, believe it or not, it's better here than it was in North Carolina because here I have so many colleagues that speak Spanish that I just basically don't get the Spanish speaking patients for the most part. And there's so many people that are bilingual that it's so easy to find an interpreter. It was kind of a lot harder in North Carolina where we had a very limited number of interpreters and this rapidly expanding population of mostly Mexican immigrants. And, um, it just made things so stressful. And I just thought if I'd only taken Spanish and my attempts to learn Spanish since then have basically failed because it takes a lot of time and I'm not quite willing to devote that amount of time to something like that when I don't need it, need it. And I'm not naturally inclined towards languages. I mean, I speak like some bad French. The thing is I speak an amount of French that if I had done that amount of Spanish, like I think I could have bridged to medical Spanish, but instead my French is pretty useless. So yeah. Yeah. I say I took like five years of French and mine's pretty useless too. I, you know, I'm sitting there in France being like, yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> say it partly boo, yeah, and I would totally say, use my Spanish. Je m'appelle Laura. <laughs> there you That's go. Just sweet on a podcast. Fortunately, like everyone in Europe speaks English better than like the average American anyway. So it's not really an issue. That is yeah. true. Yeah. No, I was thinking about like, things I should have done, um, you know, for my writing career early on, I, I wrote for a lot of different places, but I was sort of always just into like, can I get that next byline in? Can I finish the next story? And I, I felt like I was always just trying to write quick stories. Um, even though I had a number of places that would have run like longer meaty things, if I had written them, like if I'd really pursued sort of big features or, you know, getting lots of interviews, longer pieces, they would have run them. Uh, I just didn't do it because I was always, you know, if I was working from the article, I was, I was like, oh, I want to get my paycheck. <laughs> Let me you know, write something quick. Uh, I could write one story and get paid pretty, pretty much the same amount as if I, you know, write eight, I write eight stories, I paid eight for eight stories and I could write it in the same amount of time. Like, you know, it's a, 
always it's a part of my personality i don't necessarily like all that much that's easy win aspect it's good low-hanging low fruit. fruit i mean it's good for some things i have the satisficer aspect uh, that i'm good enough is good enough in many ways but sometimes i think you know it would have been good to have pieces in my portfolio early on that i was able to shop around more but yeah. did not so there we go you said letting a watch a movie uh, my last one <laughs> Yeah. Letting Annabelle watch. So at around age two, I started this ritual of letting her like watch some YouTube video on the phone before bed. And it took like until age four to break it. And you're right. I mean, I guess I didn't need to break it, but I felt, you know, at some point it became very addictive. She'd ask for more. It would rile her up. The quality of what she chose was like getting gross. Like she always wanted to watch these like unboxing videos, which I just find Ugh, just so consumer like some little kid wearing makeup like opening 15 new boxes of toys like ew like that is just so bad for the earth and just gross and I, you know that's what she would gravitate towards so one day we were just like you're done we're not doing movies anymore and it actually was fine um but I sort of wish I had never started that ritual because I think she would have been fine without it or doing something else or maybe it could have been like a song something better because it was I did it. I I started it at as a crutch and then hung on to it for too long. I don't know. I think we can't suck it. I don't yeah, think she's no, damaged. I don't think she's damaged. I mean, <laughs> if anything else, maybe you should have started a sideline where you have her unbox like fifteen <laughs> toys and then she'd be a YouTube oh, star. But I'm, she I'm wishes. Kidding, I'm kidding, but, uh, yeah, then you you and Josh could both retire. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> That's true. There are kids who have done that. We, but Alex watches oh. little Jack Jack. I don't know if anyone's listening to this is a fan of Jack Jack who uh, plays with toys and on YouTube and it's like the six-year-old kid and Alex is obsessed with little Jack Jack. Well, you better have a good savings plan because the thing is that is not a longevity <laughs> type of... As Jack Jack grows up, it won't be quite as cool. Yeah, and he has like <laughs> acne. It's like, no, this isn't so... Um, no, that's <laughs> rough. Like, I don't, I don't regret like what we've had to do to get through bedtime. I, I still sit with the three-year-old while he falls asleep on the nights that I'm putting him bed and I'm you know at this point I'm mostly okay with it because I'm just I'm reading books on my phone or I'm scrolling through Instagram which I'd rather I should be reading more books on the phone versus Instagram but it's like you know eventually he falls asleep and I've had a little bit of reading time so it doesn't seem so bad he'll probably outgrow it that habit actually I, I would not put on my regrets list we, we we actually did that until like a couple weeks ago and we finally were like you know what you're in the same room here's some reading lights we're leaving um just to more get a little bit of adult time back at night but um I don't yeah. regret that one I think you know also it's a wind down for you too you're yeah. like okay lie here relax well so so those were our uh various um mistakes, mistakes. or regrets, regrets. Or, or not so much in some cases but uh you know Things turn out mostly okay. Pretty happy with life as it as it goes. Uh, yeah, I am too. That's yeah. the funny part. It's like you think about what you could do differently, but then you look at what you have now and it's like, well, I did a lot of things right. I married a really wonderful person and I'm so glad I had chose to have three kids and um, yeah, most mostly good, good things. things. All right. So let's let's go to our, <laughs> our, our cue, our question for the, the episode as this episode drags on. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is a long uh, commute yeah, or, or workout. I hope everyone's getting their long run in for the, the weekend. Um, here, I'll, I'll paraphrase this one. So we had a, a writer, a, yes. a reader, listener said that she had listened to the audio version of my latest book, Off the Clock. Uh, it was interesting to read what you learned about your approximately 40-hour average work week versus the 50 hours you estimated in previous books, but I wonder if both are true. Uh, I expect that leading up to 
168 hours, and I know how she does it, were intense periods, um, sprints, if you will, to reach new milestones. Looking back now, could it be that you have incorporated strategies and information to make it possible to do the same or concentrated work in less time? Um, when we learn more and can do more, do we need to apologize for doing it in less time? I think that's sort of a rhetorical question. But this this lady goes on to talk about how as she's advanced in her current role, she's realized that she can make better, quicker decisions. Uh, she knows exactly what resources her team needs to move strategies forward uh, so she can work fewer hours and yet still be getting more done. Uh, and so now she's trying to figure out, well, what do I do to reinvest the returns? And so she's spending additional time on high value activities at work, such as mentoring colleagues uh, and employees. And uh, at home, she's spending more time with her kids. And, and so basically she's saying, does more time equal more time? Like the more time you put into your career early on, the more payoffs you get. So, so what do you think, Sarah? Yeah, well, I thought this question sort of led me down a track to think about like in my line of work, like what can be compressed and what can't and what's gotten faster and what's never going to get faster. And, you know, for in my job, things that can get faster are patient documentation so writing notes, which is a big part of the job, figuring out what I can outsource. And I'm sure that applies to a lot of jobs. Like you start doing everything yourself and you quickly realize like, this is what I don't have to do myself. And that will, I mean, as simple as like, I used to walk over and scan documents to email myself. And now I just send a message and it takes like a lot. I mean, I don't get as many steps in, so that's a problem, but um, <laughs> otherwise, yeah. Um, running, uh, oh, wait. Where was I going with that? So that's, that's gotten faster. So patient documentation takes less. Oh, running's, running's gotten, gotten faster, faster, although limited. <laughs> I was saying I've never, I'm never going to turn into Shalane Flanagan, but to some extent you can be a little bit more efficient. I do feel like I get faster reading and we definitely get faster writing and prepping definitely. this podcast. But then there are things that totally don't compress and I don't necessarily need them to compress. Conversations with patients, like if you compress an encounter beyond a certain point, it's going to become less meaningful no matter what. And then family time and childcare, like – you, you know, you might be able to get rid of the parts that you don't like, but the quality time to a certain extent, like you, you there is something that quantity means. You can't spend two minutes with your child and be like, Jack, done. I mean, I guess you could, yeah. but. Well, you can't guarantee that that would get everything in it that <laughs> would have happened in a, in a longer period of time. But yeah, I mean, interactions with other people are always going to be difficult to compress and make more, you know, efficient. I'm putting air quotes around it there because I don't think that's really, um, the goal necessarily with human interaction it's you know nurturing the relationship and you know like part of different matter sorry that's my um part of part of her question that's intriguing to me is like do you get punished for doing things faster and then like being assigned more i mean i think there is an element of that that you need to protect yourself from to some extent so if you do become more efficient and then you're doing other things which are not not the widget cranking out you have to make it clear to your employer that you you are still, you're doing other things of value in that additional time. I guess that, um, or maybe you're not, I guess. I guess that's that's a good question. Can you just leave early? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it depends, depends on, on the, the job. environment. I mean, some places that would be harder to pull off than others. I think some places you can definitely cash in your time dividends um, better than others. I, I know one of the things that people resent most about billable hour jobs is they feel like even if I'm more efficient, like I, I'm still needing to bill these hours. So then I just have to go find more work um, to do. But that's that's a very short term perspective, though, I think, because as you become more efficient um, and good at your job in these billable hour client jobs, like then clients start coming to you because your work is so good. And so you have to spend less. And then you can charge more per hour and then going to find those clients because if they're coming to you, like then you can bill more of your time because you're not having to build in as much like, oh, I need to go find new clients time. So I, that's, that's a very short term perspective of thinking, oh, if I'm more efficient, I just, you know, can't bill as much time and that's a problem. 
I think for me, yeah, right. I mean, what, what I do writing, it, it's definitely gotten more efficient over time. When I was first writing stories and articles, I, I wouldn't know exactly who I should call. And I wouldn't know, you know, that they would say yes to being interviewed. And I wouldn't know exactly the right questions to ask them. So I'd have to ask, ask more questions and longer interviews. And then I'd have to hunt through all that for the right quotes and figure out where to put it in the article. And the article would have to go through more drafts or even something as practical as like, if you're assigned a thousand words and your first draft is 1600, you've got a problem. Um, because you can't cut that down to a thousand words as easily as you could. Like writing for a 1600 word length, you have a different structure than if you were writing for a thousand word length. Yeah. Oh, interesting. You wouldn't have known that on the outset, but now you know exactly. Yeah, but now I know exactly what together. can fit in a thousand words. And so when I write an article that's supposed to be a thousand words, it, it will be between 900 and 1100 in the first draft, um, just naturally. That's because you know what fits. Uh, and, and so it's that definitely makes things more efficient. Blog writing definitely more efficient. I think we've gotten um, yeah podcast prep more efficient. Speaking, um, you know, I I tailor my speeches to individual clients, but uh, many of the points can be used in in the same speeches. Uh, so that doesn't have to be completely rewritten every time. Uh, so that's a time efficiency, a time dividend there, if you will. But yeah, no, I think you definitely can. And it's good to spend that extra time on high value things. Um, like this lady was saying, the you know, mentoring colleagues is a great thing to do with your time um, to actually invest in those relationships, knowing that, you know, I will get my work done. I don't need to carve out quite as much time for, say, writing that report as I did in the past. So sure, you can do more of both. Um, so we have our uh, our love of the week, I guess, is our last thing for this episode. What's What's yours this week? Mine is, I just received uh, in the mail the sequel to the Run Fast, Eat Slow cookbook, which is called Run Fast, Cook Fast, Eat Slow. And I will admit, I, I've been not doing a ton of cooking lately, but I'm kind of motivated by this one because there's a lot of really pretty easy looking things. And I also, um, like, we've been eating some of the stuff, even though I haven't been cooking it because I put it on the week's list. So I highly recommend it. I love both of these volumes. They're just like healthy food that's actually good. Like the kids will eat it and the pictures are really beautiful. And, you know, Shalene Flanagan is total badass, but Elise Kopecki, the co-author who's like the real chef behind it is really, really cool too. And yeah, legit cookbook from Real Runners. So I so love my love of the week is, <laughs> I, I am so late to all these bandwagons, but the LaCroix water, like the sparkling water. And I'm a total parody of myself too. I think about it like I was in, I was at the supermarket recently. I was like in my running clothes um, and going to the case of the Pamplemousse LaCroix. And I'm like, you know, waiting for this other lady to go away. Who's also like in running clothes, standing there in front of the grapefruit flavored sparkling water. Like she's waiting for me to go. Is that she, your favorite flavor? I'm like, no, no, I'm also going for the LaCroix. Of course, both of us here in our running gear are like headed for the cans of LaCroix. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. It's, it's, uh, you know, sometimes in the evening you want something that tastes a little different like a little special, not just straight up water to drink. And, and, you know, you can have a, beer but like you're only gonna have one of those and you know you're some nights you're not gonna have one of those like it's not really a beer night so it's like the LaCroix is like the special drink I guess in, in the evening it's uh I like the orange and the raspberry okay. cranberry right. so you're you're already on this bandwagon then <laughs> oh we've we've yes <laughs> you're, you're sitting there on this very much so you're, you're I'm a parody, parody of your parody okay, well no, there we go so we're in totally correct 
But anyway, this has been Best of Both Worlds. It's been episode 58, where we are mostly talking about our biggest mistakes. Tune in next week for more on making work and life fit together. Thanks for listening. You can find me, Sarah, at theshoebox.com or at the underscore shoebox on Instagram. And you can find me, Laura, at lauravandercam.com. This has been the Best of Both Worlds podcast. Please join us next time for more on making work and life work together. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.